There's never been a better time to go out and run than right now during the pandemic. Whether that's to go and clear your head and not think about all of the things that are happening in your life, or if it's to go and think about everything that's going on in your life and work through problems just to go outside and breathe the fresh air and to not be burdened by everything that is going on right now in the world is huge. And running is booming in, in a way that it probably hasn't since the 70s. I was curious about running, but also very curious about Tracksmith as a brand. And so today my conversation is with Tracksmith's founder, Matt Taylor. And we talk about what went into making Tracksmith as a company, what the point of view is, but also how to build a brand that's rooted in classic design and heritage and history while also being totally modern and forward-looking and go against these huge competitors in a way that seems almost impossible but has been a huge success. So that's our conversation. I, I hope you enjoy it. And even if you're not into running, I think this is going to be something that you'll find interesting and there's a lot of takeaways and, and a lot of ways that what Matt has done and what Tracksmith has become is truly incredible. And so I hope you, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. So Matt, how are you? Good to, good to see you. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. How about you? Good. Good. Have you, um, did you go running today? I did actually. Yeah, I did. Um, how was we're actually it's snowing here, which is crazy. <laughs> we have like, so you're, you're outside of Boston, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just outside of Boston. Um, maybe like four inches and it's still snowing hard. It's crazy. Oh my gosh. You better get that winter gear out. I know. I know. It's um it's it's been it's been interesting weather like it seems like weather just snuck up on everyone and you know changed really quickly. Have you has, does that like affect your willingness to get out and run? Um not I mean maybe slightly more than it, than it used to when I was younger but I mean I'll still get out in you know rain cold um I think as long as you have have the right gear it's um it can be manageable i'm just i i'm a real like i run really cold so on the really cold mornings it's just it takes me a long time to warm up um whereas other people seem to seem to warm up much quicker cold is my biggest that's my biggest weakness i don't mind snow rain wind but when it's really cold i struggle yeah i'm kind of the opposite i run really hot um so i don't i'm not much of a runner anymore i was a runner at one point but um you know, I had a bad knee injury, so I, I, I'm sort of worried about my meniscus. Yeah. One of my, um, but I was always like afraid to run in heat, you know, and I would always be sort of intimidated by that. And the cold, you can kind of, I feel like I could get warmed up fairly quickly. But yeah. Yeah. So you, you grew up on the East Coast. So you grew up in Pittsburgh. Um, I, I did. How did, how did that shape? You know, I'm from Ohio. I'm from Cleveland. So it, for me, it's, you know, those are similar, kind of a similar universe. How did that shape your perspective on the world? Yeah, I like that you called it the East Coast um, in Pittsburgh. We, I always say P Pittsburgh, at least when I was growing up there, it's actually changed pretty significantly. And, and I'm sure Cleveland is probably not far behind in that regard. But it's always like um, 
I always like to think of Pittsburgh as like East Coast desires, but Midwest sensibilities. You know, it's I, like it's like an yeah. underdog town, right? We wanted to be a big East Coast city, but you know, it's a pretty laid back and and it's got a bit of that Midwestern, um, you know, just sort of roots to it. So it's a it's a weird dynamic that you get sort of down that like Buffalo to Cleveland to Pittsburgh mm-hmm. line, where you're kind of straddling the two the two worlds. Yeah, it's, you know, I've seen, I actually have a decent amount of friends that are from Pittsburgh and they all sort of reject that it's part of the Midwest. And then, you know, but everyone in Ohio, and maybe that is to your point, the aspiration of, uh, you know, Cleveland's kind of, it's very firmly Midwest. And I think it lives in the shadow of some of these other, you know, cities like Pittsburgh or Detroit. Um, and it's, it was always sort of a little bit smaller. So it was a different beast, but definitely that underdog mentality. And I think that to me, like has shaped a lot of my perspective in the world. Like I feel a little like maybe I have something to prove. Yeah, no, it definitely, I think that's, um, you know, and yeah, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, I mean, you, you say it's squarely Midwest, but they're like 45 minutes apart from each other. Right. Like I used to growing up, we would run a cross country meet in, in Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland. And, um, you know, it just wasn't a big deal to sort of, it was, it was a much bigger deal to go to Philadelphia than it was to go to, to Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Growing up. Um, but no, I think that's right. I mean, you know, when I was growing up there, it was still very much, uh, a dominant, uh, steel and coal, um, city. And, uh, that creates a certain, I think, culture there that is sort of gets ingrained in you. And, um, and it, Pittsburgh has changed a lot as, as coal and steel, predominantly steel in Pittsburgh, you know, went, went under basically, you know, one by one, the mills closed. And, um, for a lot of the city that meant, you know, job loss and, and my, my you know, my dad experienced that. And, and as a kid, I was impressionable. I wasn't conscious of it at the time. Cause I was, I was young, you know, this was when I was in my, you know, five, six, all the way up to maybe 12, 13 was sort of the peak of, of that transition in Pittsburgh. But, but you did have this sense of like a chip on your shoulder and you did have this sense of um, a city really rallying around the community, you know, and, and sports obviously in Pittsburgh are such a huge deal mm-hmm. um, and they really dominate a lot of the social fabric in the city. And so, yeah, you, you know, you wanted to be able to compete with, um, you know, at, at the sports level with these other bigger city teams and Pittsburgh has had a great history of being able to do that. And so, there is a bit of that for sure. Um, did that tra- where, did that translate to high school sports? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, Western Pennsylvania is you know it's a lot of football, a lot of wrestling, um, but there was absolutely that you know just competitiveness. High school sports seem like everything. You know, you 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 see Friday Night Lights and you know the the idea of Texas football and mm-hmm. Western Pennsylvania is probably similar to that. Um, just yeah, the, the, the peak of high school competitiveness. I mean, it's the cradle of quarterback production, right? Is the Western PA. That's true. It's true. So did you ever think you were going to, do you ran competitively in college? Did you, did you think, I mean, was that in the cards growing up? Like, did you think I'm going to go to, I'm going to be an athlete in, in college or? A hundred percent. I mean, that was like my, you know, my dream as a kid, although it wasn't running. I, I, my first love was baseball and then basketball and, um, you know, I, even when I started thinking about college, I was literally picking colleges and thinking about colleges that had great basketball and baseball programs. Um, and then as sort of high school continued on, it, it became clear that I probably was a better runner than I was at either of those two sports. And, and so that shifted a little bit, but, um, 
but yeah, I mean, my, my, that's all I, all I dreamed about as a kid was playing, you know, professional sports, which the road to that was through college. So that's interesting. And, and now, and now you're running a clothing brand, creating, exactly. creating a direct consumer clothing company. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the, the sort of path from that to this is pretty interesting, but I think pretty relevant, you know, being, a, being into running and then, and then ending up starting Tracksmith. Yeah. I mean, I think entrepreneurship, well, there's lots of reasons that people get into it. For me, I have found it to be a bit of my um, outlet for my competitive desires, right? Like I can't, I, I didn't make it. I didn't make it to professional sports as a runner. I didn't make it to the Olympics, but I still have this drive and desire to really push myself to be the best that I can be. And so those, those you know, that energy just shifted from you know, from running, I still run and I still compete. I'm just, you know, not, not as fast as I used to be. And, um, so I just shifted that sort of competitive drive to, you know, trying to start a brand. Do do you, do you feel like it makes, it's difficult to be the type of competitive person you are and sort of balance the family responsibilities that you have and just everything else going on in your life? Yeah, that's a challenge, but, um, you know, and, and maybe, I don't know, worse or harder now with everything that's going on. But, you know, my, my wife was, um, also an amazing collegiate runner, better than I was, um, and, and grew up in a sports competitive sports family as well. And so, you know, it's something that we both bring to the table every day, whether that's, you know, in our jobs or, you know, playing cards, you know, we both (laughs) want to win and we hate to lose. So, um, but I don't know my, so my wife has a, um, a pretty stressful, busy job too. She's an attorney. She's a partner at a, at a big law firm in Boston. Um, and we have two young kids and then we, you know, made the decision, uh, probably the bad one to get a, a COVID puppy. So we also have this little dog running around. So <laughs> it's, it's may, it's mayhem, but in a way, um, you just find a way to make that work. We, you know, we, we, we don't do a lot of other things, you know? And so it's when you remove a lot of the, um, extras from your life. It's just really easy to focus on, okay, this is family time. This is work time, or this is me time. I'm going to get my 45 minute run in, you know, if you eliminate all those other things, it actually gets quite easy to sort of prioritize and, and put your, put your day together and put your week together. Not to say we don't struggle with it, but yeah. Yeah. Of course. How do you, how do you end up negotiating that workout time? (laughs) So, um, we, I mean, we just sort of, we trade off, um, you know, I, I prefer, we both prefer to go in the morning. And so we just kind of trade off who goes first. And usually whoever goes first is out the door before the kids are up or anyone else is up. And then, you know, the, the person who goes second sometimes has to deal with a bit more chaos before they can get out. It's more likely that your run's going to get bumped if you're going second, but, (laughs) um, so we deal with that. And then the weekends we have a bit more time, but that's cool. That's funny. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the, when I first, when I first saw Tracksmith, my first exposure to it, I don't, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I remember thinking you did such a good job putting the brand together. I remember thinking that this has to be like a serious, like big companies doing this, or it's like branching off from something huge. And, you know, there's gotta be someone like really big behind this, which is impressive. It just so cohesive in terms of the brand, the aesthetic, the imagery, the product design, 
the website, like all of that stuff, even in the early days, how did you, how did, how did you manage to do that as a small team? I know now that it was, you know, you pretty much did it as a very bootstrapped small group. Yeah. I mean, we were very, very focused on creating that exact perception, right? And the reason we wanted to do that is because the running industry is, it's huge. And and there are brands that have been around for, you know, decades or in some cases, a hundred years. And we felt that the only way to really um, build a foundation on top of which hopefully with success and luck and all those other things, we could really grow the brand was to have it feel like something that had been around for, you know, f- could, could have felt like it's been around for a long time. Um, it didn't feel like, uh, you know, this is just, this is going to come and go. Um, this is something that someone's just sort of trying to jam down our throats and and they're going to sell it and then move on to something else. It really was a conscious decision to try to, you know, build a brand that, I mean, I, you know, who knows if this will happen, but I think about it as like, can this be around in a hundred years? You know, can this be something that could live that long? And so, um, obviously myself and my co-founder, um, we, you know, we just spent a lot of time thinking about that and putting that together. And he was great on the aesthetic side. Um, from the very beginning, we've worked with an incredible photographer, Emily May, um, and she's, you know, her and I have, have done every single photo shoot except for maybe three or four in in literally six years or six and a half years. Um, so it was just, yeah, it was just part of how we wanted to, to build the brand and establish it from the very beginning. So that's cool. Do you, do you think is the goal to make something that's around in a hundred years or is the goal to become a huge brand and, and maybe they could be, you know, that both things could happen, right? Yeah, for for sure. I mean, big is relative. Um, you know, I don't have any desires personally to to build like an, a Nike, right? If we use that example in our space, in the sense that um, I, I want to stay super vertical within running. It's what I care about. It's what I'm passionate about. So there's no desire to sort of go outside of that. And you know, to really grow at some point, that's probably something you would have to do. You'd have to look at other sports. Um, or sort of other categories, but I think, you know, running is a huge, huge, huge market, um, going through a bit of a boom right now, which is, is good for us, obviously. Um, Mm -hmm. I just think there's an opportunity to really build all around the lifestyle of someone who is a committed runner. Um, and obviously we're, you know, just doing apparel and some accessories now, but you know, it's not a stretch to think what other areas that could go in the, in the future. Do you you feel like being a niche brand, right? Like running is such a huge sport, but then to me, like it's as an activity, it's massive. Right. And I don't know, it has to be one of the biggest participation sports in the U S right. Or globally. Um, and requires like virtually very little to do, which is good, but it also seems to me like a very niche thing in certain ways. And I actually you know, my, my perspective is I really like niche things. Um, and I think there's a lot of pressure around everything to be big and to, you know, it's like when a brand you love goes into categories because you know, they have to keep growing or whatever the reason, I think to me, a lot of times then it starts to, like, I start to lose my connection with it. I mean, do you think about being small and sort of pushing back against the pressures? Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, um, I like to think, and I, and I'm, I don't know, you know, niches, um, maybe comes with like 
some negative connotations for people of like, you know, it's not, not necessarily small. I think what you're getting at is similar to the way I think about it, which is just like really thoughtful, you know, and there's a lot of care put, put into it and decisions aren't made purely for, um, for growth. And I think those are, you know, frankly, this is a personal opinion, but those to me are the brands that are more interesting anyway, or, and not even brands, I mean, activities or, you know, any it's, it's, you know, we just went through the fall here in new England and like, I have Apple, everything in my, in my house, like applesauce, apples, apple cider, like apple pie, because it's, you know, you, you can go to the grocery store and buy apples. Um, and, and they taste, they taste fine, but you've also got these people who are like putting so much thought and passion and love into this, like apple orchard somewhere in the, you know, the Hills of new England. And you go and you just get this sense of like, they really care about this thing. You know, this isn't just something that was picked somewhere and shipped across the country, frozen, dropped on my supermarket, you know, produce section. It's like, I don't know, those things I just, you know, as I've gotten older, I, I put a lot more value in um, effort and thoughtfulness when they go into a product or a service or an experience or anything like that. I actually think that that's something that's bubbling up more. It's something that I think existed pre-COVID and before 2020, but it seems like it's bubbling up more now because like everyone's had a moment to sort of take stock in their life and think about what they're doing and where things are coming from. And and if there's any positives around all of this, it's it's kind of that pause and the clarity around that seems seems nice. Yeah. Um, I mean, does being small and being thoughtful and being at the scale that you're at make it difficult in terms of, I mean, just from like a development standpoint or like what are the challenges around that if it's like fabric or tech? Yep. I mean, the the supply chain is not built for small brands, right? It's just not the efficiencies are not there in the apparel industry, um, at least I'll say in performance apparel, there are some, there's some nuance not to get in the weeds around using super technical fabrics or certain construction techniques that, um, have been, um, sort of, you know, mastered at a, at a larger scale than we are. So that's been a challenge. I will say though, you know, we vote, we're, we're slowly each year overcoming that a little bit more, you know, in the beginning it was, whether it was just, you know, paying surcharges because we weren't buying enough fabric to then it was, we were buying enough, but we wanted to do more colors and there's, there's minimums on, you know, how much fabric you need to dye in a certain color. And so we are for the most part, the core of our business, we are, we have found partners that fit with our, our size and our scale. And so that's been nice to sort of, um, you know, the first three to four years of the, of the business, it was just a constant struggle. And, um, now we've gotten to a point where we found the right partners for where we are. And, you know, we still, we like to do special things. We like to do unique things and, and those often aren't huge volume behind them. And so, you know, but we have relationships now where we can ask to do a favor and yeah, we'll pay a little bit more. We'll pay a surcharge. Um, but, but yeah, the, 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 the apparel supply chain is, um, has been, what was challenging early on, we're, we're getting a little bit better of maneuvering our way through it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it does seem like it's, it's problematic for brands. And I feel like that's why a lot of brands start making stuff in the U S and then they'll move it once they get to a certain volume, move it to some partner that's sort of better suited for where they're at then. Um, but, it, and it also like, when I think about supply chain, I think about how just when sustainability gets factored in, you have to, it, it's going to need to evolve in some way. And some brands are kind of already doing this where, you know, they're 
either making things on demand or, you know, you get that flexibility, but it seems like just supply chain and sourcing is a huge pain point for everyone just in general, right? It is. Yeah, it is. And certainly you're, you're right. When you start to add in um, environmental impact, you know, a lot of the way things have been built and structured um, don't necessarily line up with those goals. And so it's slow moving, but there, there is a lot of improvement being made um, within the, you know, within the supply chain um, in that regard. But, you know, apparel is still one of the, you know, it's not, it's not the best industry in terms of the environment because we're, you know, making stuff, shipping it all around the world um, and, you know, dying things. But, you know, there are techniques, you know, limited water usage and, and some other things that are huge, huge step, steps forward, but um, it's not perfect and it's not going to be anytime soon. I mean, I, I look at a lot of sustainability too in, in the idea that if you buy one thing and use it a lot, it's, you know, that in a sense is also, you know, it's sustainable and it's a different way to look at it, but it's, you know, it's much better than buying something every season and, you know, just throwing it away. Like, you know, that's why I see a lot of brands that do crazy colors that then, you know, can't evolve with, or they're just, they're just there for the moment. And then they, then they, the trends move on and everyone's sort of over them. Like that neon thing that happened, right. Was like an example of that. Yeah. I mean, that idea, you're, you're, you're spot on of, you know, buying fewer, but better things or just buying things that maybe are are meant to last a little bit longer. And, you know, it's kind of crazy that mentality is something that we didn't grow up with um, necessarily, but now it trickles down. Like my daughter came home the other day and asked me, walked me around the house asking which light bulbs were LEDs. And she explained it to me that yes, they're more expensive to buy now, but they're going to last, you know, five times longer. So if you pay a hundred dollars and I was like, I mean, she's, she's 10. So it's like, you know, but, but they're already learning that concept, right. And thinking about things that way. And, um, how many of us, you know, have, have bought, you know, I don't know, piece of Ikea furniture that a year later, you know, in the kid's bedroom is totally falling apart and you literally just throw it in the trash. There's nothing to do with it when it's, when it's, you know, ended its life cycle. Um, so yeah, I, I come from my, my dad and my, um, brother, and to an extent, my mom were all craftspeople, woodworkers mostly. My brother makes incredible furniture and guitars and different things. And, you know, that's so I kind of grew up around that idea of like you you hand things down generation to generation pieces of furniture. They literally can last 50 years, 100 years. Um, so that is for sure. And, and, you know, running apparel or all apparel, you know, if you can make something that is going to last a little bit longer, um, you know, that, that in a way is a sustainable act in and of itself. And it's why we use a lot of Merino wool, you know, in, in pieces, Merino doesn't need to be washed as frequently. Washing is one of the biggest culprits for, you know, breaking down textiles and, um, reducing their, their longevity. And so if you can, you know, invest in some nice Merino pieces that you're only washing once a week or once every two weeks, instead of every other day, the life of that is going to be much longer. Do you think, so I'm, I'm a huge Merino, uh, aficionado. Yeah. I'm in a Merino club. No, I, I love, I just love Merino. I feel like Merino gets a bad rap. Um, people think, I, I think Merino has evolved too. Right. Yeah. And it's a lot softer than it used to be. Yeah. Uh, and people see it as this super scratchy thing, but then it, it's, it's sort of like a natural technical fabric, right? Like wool as yeah. in, I mean, so I think, 
yeah, why, why is Marino so, why are people so against Marino? I think, I think, um, so I think people are against or have a perception of wool in active wear that they think about their wool sweater. They think about their wool blazer. It's scratchy. It's hot. Um, you know, but the reality is, uh, when you take those merino fibers and merino is is a specific type of wool fiber and what really is important to not to geek out on this stuff but is the micron so that's how thin the actual fiber is that gets knit or woven into the um into the fabric um we use super fine micron gauge and what happens it's almost like shaving you know a, a wool fiber on itself has a lot of prickly edges to it, but that gets shaven as it goes through the process. And it becomes this very fine and smooth, um, fiber that goes into the, you know, into the fabric. And so it's not scratchy for sure. Um, Merino also has uh, a substance called lanolin, which basically doesn't allow bacteria to colonize, which is what causes odor. So that's why Merino tops literally don't, don't stink. You can wear them, hang it out to dry and you wear it the next day has no odor that like, you know, a dry fit shirt would you wear that thing to the gym once and do a 30 minute workout and it's like it has to go in the laundry basket right away so merino right. great and yeah it gets i think in i think in active wear and outdoor it's start people are finally coming around to merino um but i think someone that's like new to running or they've been running in their you know their dry fit shirts for 30 years they're like wool i'm not going to wear wool to run but it's i mean i i feel like i heard i heard you talking about wool or traveling or training and wearing like one shirt multiple times right or like bringing like the smallest amount of kit possible yep right yep yeah so wait when we were testing that. when we were testing some merino blends in the early days of tracksmith i made everyone we had a bunch of samples made and i made everyone wear the same shirt for two weeks without washing it and you know some people were running 20 30 miles a week one guy was running 90 miles a week you know and so everyone wore those shirts and, and they didn't, they literally didn't retain any of the odor, you know, at the end of that time. And it was also summertime. We were testing for fall, winter, it was summertime. So it was also hot. So people were sweating, you know, doing what you do when you work out. And, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's just an incredible fabric. The thing is Merino also, it works best in running when it's blended with something else. A hundred percent Merino is very delicate, um, especially at the smaller microns. So, you know, it can, mm -hmm. it can twist, it can lose its shape a little bit. It bags out when it gets wet. So we've, you know, we've, this is something we've spent, you know, now six and a half years sort of working on is perfecting some blends that, you know, hold its shape better, you know, but still provide all the benefits of, of Merino, but work best for running. If you're just walking around hundred percent Merino is, is lovely for intense running. It's, it's not always the best option. So if you were to just looking sort of zooming out a little bit, if if you were to go back in time and do some change something, do something differently with Tracksmith, like what did, what do you know now that you would totally throw out and redo a different way going back? Oh, that's a that's a tough question. I, I don't I don't even we like can, to, what. No, I mean, if, if you feel like, oh, no, I'm putting you on the spot with that. It's too hard. No, no, no. It's it's a good question. Um. I just don't always like, you know, you're going to make mistakes. And so I, I definitely, uh, you know, not to get too deep on this, but it's like, to me, it's much more about like the journey than it is, you know, um, having some like finish line and did we get there by this date or, or that date? But I will say some things that 
snuck up on me. One is um, expanding the the offering of the of the product. Um, not so much because it's too much product, but what I didn't realize is the effort that we put into telling the story of a single product was pretty intense in terms of the photography, amazing copywriting, how we laid that out on a product page and really, you know, built this sort of emotional, um, experience around the product. And so when we launched the brand, we had five products and it was, you know, pretty easy to go do a photo shoot with some runners in the mountains for a weekend in new England and, and tell those stories. But then as it grew, it was like, oh, wow, we've got to, you know, how do we shoot all of these products? So that we found ways to still, we still do it the exact same way we did it in the beginning. It just takes more time um, to do it. And that, that definitely just sort of like expanding the offering as quickly as I, I did. Um, and then the other thing I wouldn't say, it's like, I would do it differently necessarily, but um, when you are the the founder of a company and you start to hire people, I didn't anticipate what, I mean, I've managed people in previous jobs before, but it, it really hangs on you when it's like your responsibility to not only make sure that they're happy and motivated and they get a paycheck every two weeks and like stress of having, you know, now we're at like 25 or 26 full-time people. Um, the stress of that is definitely something I didn't anticipate um, and has, has been challenging at, at times, but um, also a great learning experience for me. I mean, it's a different, it's a different skill, right? Going from managing yourself to work, like trying to facilitate all of your people to be the best they can be and, and, and do well in their career, but also with the company, right? Totally. It's two very different things. Yeah. And it's hard, hard to translate yeah. those two things. Yeah. Do you put, do you pull a lot of people? I mean, do you find a lot of people through running? It seems like a pretty yeah. fertile yeah, source we, of interesting, smart people. Sorry. Yeah, we, we definitely do. Um, we have been fortunate that we have, um, you know, not had to post many jobs. I mean, I, I have viewed hiring in um, sort of m maybe a non-traditional way. Um, one, there's really been two paths. One is opportunistic. Somebody reaches out and says, hey, I really love what you're doing. Um you know, here's my skill set. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. We were thinking about that just last week of trying to, you know, go in this direction or that direction, or we have, you know, this opportunity. So that's been, that's just how it's, how it's evolved. And a lot of those people come from within running, because obviously to connect with our brand, especially in the early days, you, you pretty much have to be kind of into running. Um, and then the other is like, because we've been small and limited with our resources, we just kind of like push sort of to the limits of what people can, you know, realistically take on in their capacity until something kind of breaks, or we just realize like, okay, like this person can't do these four jobs anymore. They're going to do these two and we're going to hire someone because no one does just one, one job at a startup. You have more than one job. So, um, so yeah, so it's just been, you know, it's been through relationships and, and people reaching out to me, um, or to the brand because they, they like, or connect with the brand. You know, I got my first job by basically I was in New York without any, you know, I, no prospects trying to figure it out. And I saw this guy that worked at this agency that I knew 
uh, he didn't really know me, but I knew who he was. And I just sort of accosted him on this train um, and was like, hey, I'm looking for a job and like ended up getting my first job from that. Yeah. And I heard your story about getting your first job yeah. when you're when you're at Yale. Yeah. Uh, would you tell us that story? Yeah. Um, so Mark McCormick, who was the founder of IMG, which is, um, you know, what was maybe still is the world's largest sports marketing management agency. He um, he came to Yale to give a talk and um, my roommate and I went and you know, I was fascinated. It was in front of a couple hundred people in a big lecture hall and just telling all these stories about how he got into the business and his personal personal relationships with with these you know athletes famous athletes and how he built the business and then he gave like this um more informal talk um afterwards to a, a much smaller group of people that i was fortunate enough to be able to go to is maybe 20 30 of us just sitting in a in a room on couches and chairs and so anyway i just like it was my senior year of of college i had no job lined up i still was very confused what i wanted to do and a bit panicked because everyone else at that time had their, you know, their jobs and their apartments in, in New York city. Cause most of them were going there. Um, and, uh, I was just fascinated by his story. And so I went home and I wrote him a letter and back then in new Haven, there really were only two hotels on, on campus. So I just kind of assumed which one, the nicer of the two that he would be staying. And, and I went the next morning and I just dropped this letter off at the front desk. And I said, can you give this to Mr. McCormick? And, I thought no chance I hear anything back, right? No, no chance I will, I will hear back. And two weeks later, I go to my post office box on, on campus and um, I had a letter back from him that was, you know, thanks for your, for your letter. It's very kind. Um, I'm going to introduce you to my son who is, he was at the time running um, the sort of digital um, arm of IMG, um, ironically in Boston, which is kind of how I ended up here. Um, and so I got a call from him and went up and interviewed and that was, yeah, that was my first job out of college. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you think that translates to, to like people looking for a job right now? <laughs> um, it's pretty bold. That's a bold strategy. That's not like DMing someone that's, no, you know. it is bold. Although back then, you know, we didn't have DM. I mean, if, yeah. if we did, maybe I would have, um, he wouldn't have been someone that would be on social media anyway, but, um, you know, I do. I occasionally get those. I mean, uh, Lee, who, you know, on our team, you know, she always talks about as their tracksmith love letter. I mean, she wrote a really nice note to me too, about, um, her connection to the brand and if there were ever any opportunities and, you know, those personal touches just resonate way more with me than a sort of, you know, you can tell someone sending a bunch of, a bunch of, you know, um, out to people or whatever. Yeah. And so we've always valued that sort of like someone really is interested in the brand. It's not just a job. And I think that's important when you're, when you're starting out. But I, I also think that that's, that's the important thing to think about when you're starting a company or you're building something or you're doing something, you have to build something that actually inspires people. Right. Right. To like have a real connection. And, and that becomes this self-fulfilling thing where you do something inspiring, you inspire people like Lee to reach out to you. And Lee is one of the most capable, like amazing people like I've ever, ever known. And she's just really good at what she does. And you're lucky to have her. Yep. And it's cool to, you know, it's cool that you can draw, you know, those people. And it wouldn't happen, I think, if it weren't an inspiring brand, but also it, it wouldn't happen probably if you weren't telling the stories, right? Like you guys made a decision to 
tell stories, right? right? You have a magazine. Right. No, hundred hundred percent. I mean, I think that's, and again, that all went into that thinking about the brand and trying to create that, um, you know, we, we're just, we, we sort of lead, I guess, with emotion, right. And then sort of pragmatism comes in, in later. Um, and so to build that whole encompassing sort of feeling, um, and, and, and that's, that resonates with certain people for sure. Wait, so I have to ask if you're, you know, went to school in New Haven, does that make you a Sally's person or a, a Frank Pepe person? <laughs> um, I, or maybe neither. No. Um, I, I like both of those. Pepe is actually now up in Boston. They've sort of branched out a little bit. There was this little place um, called Bar. It just was called Bar. It's not an old, it's mm -hmm. not a place that's been around forever um, that I actually really liked because they had a mashed potato and bacon pizza. That, that's amazing. <laughs> um, but actually there's a third. So Bar is modern, but there's a third modern pizza. Um, yeah, modern. Orange Street. I actually, that was my, that was my favorite between Sally's, Pepe's and 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 modern i really like modern I, sally's feels like a strange it's just you get a very strange vibe in there it, me. it is yeah 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 like it's only there is it's like a fake it's like a movie it's like a dry cleaner that got set up for a movie you know exactly like it was a, like, the whole thing was manufactured somehow or something yeah yeah, yeah that's funny yeah um so do, does everyone on the team go running every day i mean what's the do, let my people go running yeah are you, yeah, are you I mean, reaching there's, that there's definitely a lot of that um you know and everyone's at different ability levels or different stages of training but certainly um when we were all in the office i mean you know any time of day. We, we have three floors. The first is a retail store. The second is half retail, half community space. Um, it's where we, you know, meet for all of our group runs on, you know, we were doing that Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday mornings for long run. So there's some like, you know, yoga mats for stretching. We have Normatec pants, which are these like recovery pants you put on after your run, um, you know, bands, stretching ropes. We also have a um, uh, a chiropractor massage therapist that has a, a, a treatment room as well. So you can pretty much any day, anytime during the day, Tracksmith go down to that floor and like at least one person would be like in the boots or in the massage on the massage table, or, you know, just sweating, coming back from a run or, you know, getting ready to go out. So, um, That's yeah, cool. it definitely is like built into the, into the culture, you know, quite a bit. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I think I, my philosophy has always been sort of if it's someone's career, like they can manage their time. Yeah. Right. Because it, it's their career. It's not a job. Right. And, you know, and I think that I think giving people the trust is, you know, probably enables them to be more productive anyway. Right. We yeah. I mean, we we certainly um, work hard, but I think that like um idea of a startup being like this grind of 80 hours, you know, at your desk the whole time. I mean, there's, there's periods of our business that are, that are busy pop-ups and things like that. And yeah. um, some people will probably hear this and be like, he's crazy, but like, but I think it's a good balance. I actually think, you know, there's no, there's no, no one's punching a clock. No one's over your shoulder asking where you are. You know, if you want to go for a long run, on a Thursday afternoon, it's, it's totally fine. Do it then, you know, to your points, like just manage your time. We all know what we have to do to get our, our jobs yeah. done. So. Yeah. I mean, I think, so I've talked about this a little bit. I mean, I see work-life balance as like being challenged and feeling fulfilled in your work and your, in your personal life. And that's the balance. There's not, it's not actually about uh 50% time here. 50% of my time is there and that's balance, you know? 
It's a it could way. be like, I'm working a hundred hours a week, but like, I'm so into what I'm doing that I don't care. You know, Great way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. So going the do you, do you, I have this also this other thing where I'm really interested in like um, blocking time to focus. Yeah. Um, just sort of based on the idea of um, like a residual distraction in your brain. Like if you're trying to multitask. Yeah. Like you pull, I actually feel this a lot and I see it in my, I'll see myself doing it where I think about what I was doing previously to what I'm doing now. And that will make me go on my computer to some window or some do something. And then I realize, oh, I'm just thinking about that other thing. Stop thinking about it. Yeah. You know, and that'll like give me the focus. But to really focus, to have a deep focus, you need to have these huge blocks of time where you're just intensely thinking about one thing. But do you find that running will help you to develop ideas or give you that time? I mean, is that part of it for you? Yeah. And, and frankly, it, in this time, it's one of the only undistracted hour, you know, of my day that I can often get my, my, um, my kids are in a hybrid system right now. So they're going into school two days a week and then home three. So, and we, and we, my wife and I are sort of tag teaming the childcare and stuff. So it, that, that has been my biggest challenge during COVID is not having that undistracted window. Um, because I used to be really good at that, like you, and, and I would, you know, I'd, whether it was closing my door in my office or just finding a quiet space or, or whatever, and, and really focusing. So running is, has always been an important part of that for me. I, I definitely turn through ideas and work through ideas, um, while running. Sometimes I just let my mind wander. Um, I don't, run with music or podcasts. I, I just go out the door with a stopwatch. Um, and that's it. And so that's definitely been a big, um, like a watch, like a Garmin watch or like so, a stopwatch. So I, I, I have, um, I will say I have been using a Garmin a little bit, but, um, forever, I just use a, um, Timex Ironman just, you know, mm -hmm. start, start, stop. How, how long did I run? But I, I got into this like virtual racing and you have to have like GPS proof. So I actually bought a Garmin just to like run some virtual races. And now I'm kind of like, Oh, that's cool. I can look at how my pace fluctuated and what my heart rate was. And, but I've always been a, a run on feel, not, you know, listening to a, a watch, tell me what to do, which, you know, there's good, good and bad of that. But what about Strava? I'm not, a, I don't use Strava. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, Strava to me is a very interesting universe. It feels like it's its own, you know, that's its own world. And there's certain people I know that, you know, can't be bothered. You never see anything on social media from them, but then I look on Strava and I see them yep. every day, yep. you know, and, and very active and very engaged in it yep. and like competing on segments. And yeah, I mean, it's definitely a social media platform in and of itself for a lot of people. Um, and, and there's some, you know, people, you know, it's a, it's a great way to sort of connect with other, other runners and, and everyone that I know uses it. I'm just sort of uh, out there on my own, not, not using it. So I hear the benefits of it from people. And I think people genuinely like it. I think there's been some, you know, a little bit written about because it is public, people maybe are pushing a little too hard on a day that they should have gone easy because they, once you've run eight minute pace, you don't want someone to see you ran nine minute pace. Or once you get into the sevens, you don't want to see, you know, that you admit that you ran in the eight. So, um, is that why, is that why you don't do it? No, I, mean, I don't have, um, 
I don't think I would. I when I was younger, a hundred percent, I am past the point of really um, caring about what maybe other people might think about, like my training or or something like that. Um, still want to race fast. I still have some some goals as an old man racing, but training, I'm like, I'll run, I'll just do my thing, and I wouldn't worry what other people said. But I think it's good. I mean, I think that that's actually one of the most difficult aspects of social media is all the external pressure around these to, to conform to things like yeah. that, where it's harder. I mean, to you, and I, I almost feel it and not in a negative way, but it's, it's hard probably to avoid it. Right. Yeah. It's like you don't drink and you go to a cocktail party and everyone's like, why aren't you drinking? Yeah. Why are you asking me? Like, yeah. why do you care? Yeah. 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 No, it's true. I mean, I'm not on, um, Strava or any social media, but I mean, I have accounts on Facebook and Twitter. I, I don't use them at all. Um, and part of it is that, you know, I just like, and, and probably anyone that uses it knows that where you just like, you want that feedback immediately of, you know, you, you, whatever good or good or bad. And, and I just like, I just didn't with everything else going on. I just, that was a decision I made of like, yeah. I'm just going to like leave that behind. Um, Cause it's a distraction. Um, and, and I, I just think that the, I don't know, I think the way that those platforms, uh, in a way rewire your brain is just not healthy. And I think, yeah, I think in, I agree in 10 or 20 years, like that will be something that we look back on the way we look at like alcohol and tobacco. Yeah. Do you, I mean, is that a factor with your children? Not to like get too deep in, in, I mean, do you think, no, not that them using it, but how you approach it. Cause it's, yeah. it's like a parental decision. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they're, uh, they're too young yet for any of the social media platforms. Um, like I said, my, my daughter's in fifth grade, my son's in third, um, no phones yet or anything like that, but they, they will use our iPad or whatever, use our phone every once in a while. And my wife and I talk about this all the, all the time, like the games, the way they're designed today definitely are not the way game designers approach games when we were kids. And I hate to sound like that person, but like I would almost rather set my kids in front of a Nintendo and play Mario brothers than to have them play these games online where you like, you know, you do something and then you have to wait 10 hours and then it unlocks something and it just creates this, like, I have to check, I have to check, I have to check. It's not, it's, just not it's it's weird it's not healthy so you know we we they play some of those games and we let them have a little bit of freedom in in that regard but when i can i just try to push them to games that are that don't have that mechanism built in of like trying to earn stuff to unlock stuff to like get rewarded for it yeah i mean how, so with that in mind how do you think about introducing running to your to your children um, I mean, is that something you think about? Yeah. Yeah. And, and pretty cautiously just because, you know, most kids don't gravitate to running as a, as a thing. So, um, and my parents weren't runners, they, they played other sports, but so I, you know, I, I just came to it sort of naturally as, as life went on. Um, so we, we like when they want to go for a run, which is sometimes we encourage it this summer, um, my daughter was running with, um, with my mother-in-law, um, every morning, you know, just a mile, mile and a half down the street and, and back. And like, I didn't really 
push that, just sort of let it happen. And she was really like, really liked it and really proud. And my son likes to race when there, when there were like local road races, there was often a kid's race. And so he kind of was mm-hmm. getting into that at the time, but then now with, you know, COVID there's, there's none of that going on. So I don't know. It's a good, it's a really good question. I actually, I really want, they, I really want them to run, you know, because I, I do think it's just a, an amazing activity. Even if you're not competitive, I think it does so much for you, for your, for your confidence, for your well being mentally and physically and, and all these other positive benefits that we know come with running. Um, but I also love team sports. Like I said, I played basketball uh, and baseball. I love those sports. My son's playing soccer. I love watching that, you know, so, um, I won't, I won't I push them, but yeah, I, I mean, I think I feel like, and, and I don't really know, I have very small children, so, um, I'm not really at that point, but to me, it's like, and you know, I actually have a friend that's a professional golfer who would ne- didn't play golf until he was like 15. Wow. And, and, but played every other sport. And I, and I asked him, you know, what do you think about, like, how would you get, uh, you know, what would you do with your, with your son if you wanted to try to get him into golf? He's like, just make him play a bunch of other sports. Right. And, or just, ha- you know, present that stuff to him and not make him do it. But, yeah, you know, that, that seems like there's, and if, and they, then they can choose. It's like you, it's like, you probably would have, you chose three basically, yeah. but then you ended up in running. And yeah. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. I think that generalist approach with kids, I mean, obviously like, you know, there's, there's, you can always find research that, that backs up the opinion that you, that you have, you can always find someone to validate your yeah. opinion, but it does seem like with kids, this sort of pressure to specialize super early on with this like crazy idea that someone's going to make it to the professional ranks or get a scholarship or whatever is, it's kind of wild. And, and I think you can see that in youth sports, like crazy, you know, and they, they want you to play year round and be on these teams and, um, do you read that article in the Atlantic about yeah. squat and squash? Fairfield. Oh, there's one. Yeah. Yeah. Fairfield. County yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's pretty nutty. Like it, what, what st- stood out, I mean, there was so much crazy stuff in that story. Um, but one thing that really stood out was the coaches, college coaches would evaluate prospects, these kids, and say, you know, they've been, co- some of them they'll look at and be like, oh, they're really raw, tons of talent, n- haven't been really coached, like we can extract so much more out of them. Yeah. And then some of them, they'll be like, they've been sort of professionally engineered to get to this point, And there's probably nothing left. Yeah. Which is pretty scary, yeah. you know, to think about. I mean, that that's often, you know, the the conversations in running. I mean, it's probably the same in, in every sport to an extent where like if you take a, a high school kid and they've been running, you know, 50, 60, 70 miles a week since eighth or ninth grade, what's their upside versus someone that's been running 20 to 30, you know, maybe is is doing some other things where their general athleticism is greater. Maybe that makes them a little less prone to injury, you know, and all those things. And so, yeah, it's just like always a, a bit of a gamble. And like I said, there's examples of, you know, Tiger Woods, we've all seen the footage of him hitting a golf ball when he was three years old and he became the best in the world. But there's other examples of people who didn't start until much later and, and still can rise to that level. So, yeah, it's interesting. You know, the one, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was, um, the New York pioneer club, the capital you guys did. Um, and I actually didn't know about Ted Corbett. Um, and I was a member of New York Roadrunners and just an organization that I actually really, really loved and made a huge impact on, 
on my time in New York. How did that come about? So, you know, we as as a as a brand, I mean, we're 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 running nerds, right? So and history buffs to an extent. And we love to tell stories that aren't well known, um, but super important. Um, the first one I think that we did at sort of a similar scale was Bobby Gibb was the first woman to ever run the Boston Marathon. Um, but the year after that, another woman, Catherine Switzer, ran, and um, she was sort of tried to tried to be forcefully removed from the course by the race director. And there's a super iconic photo of this man trying to pull this woman off the the race course. But poor Bobby Gibb didn't get any of the sort of notoriety. She's an incredible cr- creative individual, just a great spirit. And and so we did something to sort of tell her story. And she's an artist and a and a sculptor. And so when we had a pop-up in Boston, we, you know, gave her a gallery space in the pop-up and and she did some talks and stuff. But so Ted Corbett, it's the same thing. It's his story is like fascinating. And I only knew it sort of on the on the fringes and then started diving into it a bit, a bit more deeply. And um, we partnered with Knox Robinson, who's a you know great runner and a writer and a coach. And he was the founder of Black Roses, um, New York City. Um, one of the first sort of urban run crews, you know, probably now like 10, 12 years ago when that started. Um, yeah, Knox is, Knox is the coolest guy on earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it says on his resume. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's a good, uh, it's a good title. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so, you know, Ted Corbett um, was um, considered sort of like the 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 godfather of distance running. I mean, he was um, an amazing runner, like performance wise was, was one of the best competed in the Olympic games. Um, but also was like the first person to really experiment with like super long distance running before anyone used the word ultra marathoning or ultra running. He would run like the loop of Manhattan, the perimeter of Manhattan, like 30 miles, 40 miles one way, um, you know, to his office and then work and then run home. And, running crazy amounts of mileage um he was the new york roadrunners first president once the group started um once that started he's also the guy who invented the standard of how to measure a race course because when you think about like 26.2 miles is both very exact but then when you think about the roads we, we run on it's like wait what if you run close to the curb versus over on the other side of the road like it's not exactly 26.2. So he came up with the measurements and how you do that around the angles and the tangents and all that stuff, which literally defines how any, any race course is now, is now measured. So anyway, just super incredible guy. And he was part of, um, pioneer club, New York pioneer club, which was, um, a club started in the, in the sixties was started by three black men, but really it was started, um, with, with this idea of it being for any, any race, any creed, um, you know, any, anyone really, because there were these groups that were, um, much more sort of exclusive. And so they wanted to create this super, um, you know, inclusive and welcoming club. And, um, and so Ted was, um, you know, a member of that club for a very long time. And, and so it's a little bit of a celebration of Ted's legacy, as well as the pioneer club and their legacy, um, in what would have been the 50th anniversary of the New York city marathon, um, Mm -hmm. week, I think they're pushing most of those celebrations and stuff to next year, but, um, and, and the response yesterday to the launch was, I mean, we've done a lot of things that make me proud at Tracksmith, but, but just the response to yesterday was really, really positive and, and, and felt, felt really good. 
Yeah. I mean, that's, it's cool to see. And, and I think the way you guys, to me, that's one of my favorite aspects of the brand is your affinity for history and how it informs what you do now in a way that feels, it feels really modern and interesting. And, and it's, and it, there's very natural connections, right? So it's not something that seems like it's, all right, let's like plug in this thing. Cause we need like, what are we launching in, you know, October yeah, or whatever, totally, you know, it, it's like these cool ideas and I'm like, Oh, I'm learning something. So then, so I learned about Ted and then I go down the rabbit hole of running clubs and it's, it's really, it's fascinating stuff. And like, to me, even not as a runner, I'm like, this is, you know, this, these are the things that shape, that's like sort of the, the, you know, 99% visible premise, right. It's like the things that you can't see that have shaped our world that's really interesting. And I like the way you guys incorporate it into the brand. I'm, I'm glad you said that that was sort of the response you had of kind of learning about Ted and going down the rabbit hole. Cause that, I mean, that is literally like, if I could script the reaction that I would want someone to have when they come across something that we do as a brand, that's exactly it, you know? So, um, it's cool. so it's, I'm glad that, glad that worked. Are there other things around, are there other things, non-running things that inspire you? Um, I mean, it's kind of a big question. That's a big question. Um, I mean, are you into fashion? Are you into clothing? Yeah. A clothing company. Yeah, I, I know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I am. Yeah. I, 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 that's certainly, that's certainly one, um, one area. Um, I do love like classic menswear and, and sort of workwear, you know, in that, in that world, um, you know, because you grew up with it. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, 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 for sure. And then, and then to me, like New England, not growing up in New England, um, I would say that is a huge, probably one of the biggest, just sort of like, it's always there influences on Tracksmith is just sort of the, the four seasons of New England. Um, I'm fortunate enough, my wife's family is out on Cape Cod, so we get to go out. The, so you've got like beach and ocean, you can get up in the mountains. You know, there are a few places in in the US or really in the world where you get such um variation across a 365 day window of weather and scenery and topography and and all of those things and i just love that i i love i love new england i love all of the you know all of the things that come with it um super cliche i know but it's a wonderful place do, do you do you feel like being new england centric limits what you can do with the brand i mean has that been something you think well you know because there, there's a lot of running just there's a lot of history of running in the Northeast, especially in Boston. Right. Um, and just like a lot of brands that sort of sprung out of that. Yeah. And I mean, is that something you guys think about? It, it is. I mean, I don't view it as limiting and, and, and people have asked that, you know, it was like, Oh, New England, like, why is that there? And, you know, I think when, um, there is a, a cultural center around something, an, an activity or, or whatever that may be, I think that's when place can be an important um, part of a brand's identity and a brand story. You know, it's like you wouldn't be maybe as interested in a surf brand from, you know, Iowa that you would be from Southern California as an East coaster. That's still, that still resonates with me. And I'm, I'm not a Southern California guy, but like, I kind of, that's what I want or Hawaii. Right. I never, I've never been there, but if I'm, if I, if I want to, you know, know that someone has put a lot of care and, and thought into my surf board or, or whatever, like I'm going to trust 
that if it's coming out of those areas, right, there's, there's a little bit, that, yeah. that's maybe a little too like on the nose, but I, but I think that's, you know, so I don't view it as, as limiting, um, is the, you know, was some of the perception around the brand in the early days of maybe being like this preppy Ivy league thing limiting may, maybe to an extent, but it also wasn't our doing. It's just kind of was the lazy way for, I think, journalists to write about the brand in the beginning. You know what? I, I did go to an Ivy league school, but it's not my desire to create like this weird Ivy league brand. We're certainly influenced by Ivy style, which is a very specific fashion thing, not necessarily related to like the educational, you know, values of, yeah. of the, Ivy. I mean, the, so. I think it's interesting, the sash that you say that about Ivy style. Yeah. And then I think about the sash, right. Which is sort of uh, maybe part of the logo or uh, certainly yeah. part of the identity of the brand, yeah. but that's a real thing. It's not done out of like, can you talk about the, where that comes from? Yeah. Um, so there's a few different areas that that uh, or, or places of inspiration. So Cornell um, has this history dating back to the late 1800s, where if you scored a point for the team at the league championship, you would get a satin sash sewn over the C on your singlet. So Cornell is generally white or red with the white or red C on the chest. And if you scored a point, they would literally take your singlet and they would sew a sash over it. Nowadays, they just screen print it on there. But if you go to a, you know, if you ever went to a, a cross country or track meet and you saw Cornell, some athletes will have a sash through their C and, and some won't. Um, so it's just like this, you know, this idea of like, and, and, and what I loved about that, what I love about that tradition is it wasn't about an individual performance necessarily. It was about helping your team, you know, at the league championship, which, um, which I really liked. So, um, do you, do you see running as an individual thing or as a team thing? So ultimately, I mean, let's remove relays. Ultimately <laughs> running is an individual pursuit. However, um, there are elements to it that wrap you in the framework of a team, right? So like the best now having, again, I played basketball all through high school and the best analogy I can use there is like, I could, I could have a horrible, horrible game uh, in basketball. And it, and in some ways it may have zero influence on the outcome, right. Of, of the game, because maybe our uh, superstar player had his best game ever. Right. But in running, like you still got to get across the line and you got to get across the line in a time that's going to like help the, help the team. And so it, it, and there's also zero help that your teammates can really give you. I mean, maybe some little tactical things but like in, mm -hmm. in other sports, team sports, you know, there's so many other, there's a ball bouncing around, there's referees, there's stoppage and starting and all this stuff. And once the whistle blows and, and or the gun, you know, goes off in a, in a race, it's kind of just you out there on your own, even though you may have teammates, like in cross country, it's a team sport. It's scored as a team sport, but it is a very individual in, pursuit. But with the, with the brand with Tracksmith, I feel like you guys have made it a lot more about the, the camaraderie around running with friends and, you know, like the post run beer or whatever that is, you know, like that's the sort of fun part of, you know, I think now, and, and I don't want to say like, as we get older, Cause I don't want to say you're old, but you know, I feel like with me, it's like, it's cool to do stuff, but it's also like great to be. And especially during COVID, you're kind of like, it'd be amazing to go run with my buddies or go ride our bikes and then have a beer, yep. you know? Yep. Uh, that, I mean, so that to me is where like the team and the community aspect really comes in. There's something around the shared 
experience, even though it's individual, you're sharing the same thing. You're sharing the starting line, the finish line. You all went through the same, you know, oh, it really hurt during that period of the race. So when you finish something like that, where you give a lot of physical exertion, it's probably true in a lot of sort of, you know, endurance sports like that. There's a bit of that high afterwards. And when you're surrounded by other people who went through the same thing, it just fosters, you know, this desire to mm-hmm. sit around and have a few beers and, and recount the the race or the day or just talk about totally random stuff. So yeah, that's a huge, huge part of the community and in, in running is that we all have that shared experience of going to the starting line nervous and hopefully ending up at the finish line, good or bad, you know, slow or fast. Yeah, yeah totally. That's great. Well, Matt, it, it's been really, really great talking to you and this has been super insightful and I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate it too. Thanks for, thanks for having me. 